Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to share some things that I learned while I was attending the Tri-County Beekeepers Workshop earlier this month. First I'd like to do some homestead updates. I mean, there's no avoiding the coronavirus. I'm sure you're all either sheltering in place or practicing social distancing. I'm sure many of you have been affected by job loss or um, maybe someone in your life who is on the front lines, someone who's working at the grocery store or is working in hospitals or healthcare or the vet's office, all the places that are staying open for us. So... I thought when this started, um, I started practicing social distancing very early on. I mean, I've mentioned before that I'm basically a hermit, so it wasn't that hard for me to follow the guidelines. But once we got put in um, the shelter in place order, so just as a reminder, I'm in Ohio, so we've been under a shelter in place order for a little bit now. And that basically means, for those of you who aren't under one, that um, we're not supposed to leave our premises unless it's for something essential. And Essentials actually does cover a fair amount of stuff. So you can leave to go and get food. You can leave to pick up food from like takeout or coffee places or in our area, ice cream. Um, That's very popular. And um, our local ice cream place, Pav's Creamery, is actually offering care packages where they deliver four pints of ice cream within a certain area for $25. And that's a great way of supporting, you know, a local business that's been here for years. So you know there are other things as well if you need to go to the vet for um, an emergency or anything that's very serious that can't wait the same with our healthcare. if there is an issue that you're having that cannot wait you of course can go out a lot of places are following um, the social distancing rules so that for instance like my vet sent out a really good email to inform us of what was going on and how they were handling it and one of the things that they're doing is if you schedule an appointment they ask you to arrive and wait in your car call them they then send someone out to collect your pet they have all the work done they then bring the pet back to you and the billing process is all online so you don't have to go in the interaction between you and other people is almost zero and the interaction between your pet and other people is at a minimum as well so things are progressing and and people are doing the best that they can and we're trying to support our local communities as best that we can as well while keeping everyone safe. Um, I've mentioned before that my husband is a professor. Uh, He works at a local university and um, they actually closed quite early on. So we were about two weeks away from spring break when they cancelled all the classes and um, extended the spring break period so they let all the kids go home and that extended period was supposed to give professors time to prepare all their classes to an online format so we're going to be online teaching for the foreseeable future. Not long after that happened, I think probably about a week, maybe a little longer, the university closed entirely to everyone but essential staff. And this includes my husband because he works with live animals and you can't just abandon the animals and he also can't move them out of the research area either. So he goes in um, daily to make sure the animals are okay. And thankfully, because it's just him checking on this one group of animals, he doesn't really interact with anyone so he can maintain social distancing. 
the downside is that it's a big adjustment for him because he can't do any research. He There's a number of things that he just isn't capable of doing from a distance. But there's also stuff that he can do from home. So he's working on recording his classes. He is working on all the usual paperwork, grant, submissive, um, excuse me, submissions, all the kind of stuff that comes with being a professor. And I will say one of the nice things about having him home is that, um, well, I get hugs during the day, which is great. And um, he actually is so much more relaxed because he's tenure track. So he has uh, responsibilities and goals that he has to meet to achieve tenure. And it's a very trying time for professors. And when he's a the university obviously there's people that can interrupt him because they need his help you know he has office hours he has meetings and he's a dual appointment so he has meetings with multiple departments and there's just a lot more pressure when he's there but when he's at home because everyone is now working their own kind of schedule he's just much more relaxed um he's fallen into the schedule really really well he's being very productive I'm super proud of him and it really brings home to me um just how fortunate that we are not just because he's salaried so unlike so many people right now we don't have to worry about income which I am really really relieved about and so grateful but also because um (laughs) some of the stuff on social media really makes it seem like people don't like their family which I can understand for extended family um I have a very small family and I'm only really close to my mum and my brother and they're back in England. Um, So I can kind of understand like, you know, if you don't get on with everyone, but I love my husband. Um, We're coming up to 12 years of marriage this year and he's still my favorite person. So having him home more has been wonderful to see him more. And even though he is usually in the study working, just having him around, getting those like hugs during the day, you know, getting to see him more relaxed and he's getting more sleep and we're spending more time together. It's really wonderful. And I I feel kind of guilty saying that because this is a terrible time, but I'm trying to focus on the positive and just feel my gratitude for having him in my life. Um, I'm also very fortunate that I, I know a lot of you have seen all the information about you know the shelves being empty and people stocking up on everything and there's no toilet paper and all this kind of stuff well I've been very fortunate I shop at Aldi and um, they've actually been really good about keeping in stock my local targets also very quickly on set limits on paper products so even though I didn't need any toilet paper anyway I was really gratified to see that there was toilet paper and paper towels and other goods like that available for people so that's been really really wonderful and I've tried to kind of spread the word and we're lucky as well because I have chicken so for a while there was this huge run on eggs and people couldn't get eggs at the store and so my neighbors and my friends were asking me if I could sell them eggs and I was happy to do so but I actually ran out pretty early on um there's been a lot of memes online about crazy chicken people suddenly being in fashion which I found very funny and very true and so I'm hoping that um I'm kind of building back up my egg supply now. And once I have extras, I'm, you know, giving them to my friends and my neighbors and, um, 
you know, I would be happy to give them away, particularly during this time. But my friends and my neighbors are super supportive and they won't let me give them anything for free. So that's really sweet of them. And um, I'm being careful about when I drop it off and I'm not trying to expose my neighbors. A number of my neighbors are in the risk group because they're older. So I'm trying to be safe. Um, One of my friends, she also works at the university. She lives nearby and we've been hanging out because it was a huge adjustment for her. She's probably the busiest person I know. And I think she had a hard time adjusting to this slow kind of working from home schedule. And then I thought I was doing okay, but this past weekend I went stir crazy. And I think what it is, is that I miss my routine, like like everyone else. Um, you know, I think I'm a hermit and I kind of am, but I also have like my favorite coffee shop where I know all the baristas and we catch up and they tell me how they're doing and how their kids are doing and how their parents are doing. And we kind of just share and we have these little social interactions. And I guess I took them for granted because now that I don't have them, I feel trapped and when the weather turned because it's spring here the weather turned and we had the rain and my garden flooded like it does every year I need to put some pictures of the flood up actually and actually there were flash floods in the area and some people had it really bad and so we're just stuck inside I can't go out I can't work on the garden I can't you know I want to go running but I can't run because of my back and I can't go swimming because all the pools are closed obviously swimming is not a priority so I just got stir crazy and I wanted to just drive around you know just go for a drive um but I ended up you know making myself get work done making myself do like beekeeping reading and working on my blog and working on the podcast and um and then on Sunday I went to see my friend and we both take our temperatures before we meet to make sure that we're still healthy and we can hang out together. And that's been a lifesaver, getting to see her and catch up with her. So anyway, moving on from the coronavirus, I really, really hope that you're all doing okay. Um, I I really hope that you are managing to get by at this terrible time and that all your loved ones are safe and healthy. And I don't know what I can do, but if you think of something, you need something, send me a message. Um, Bare minimum, I might be able to forward some resources or links to places that can help so don't be afraid to reach out this is definitely a time where we need community so don't be afraid to reach out to the people around you and ask for help there is no shame in that particularly at a time like this but on to slightly more positive news I before the rain came and um, trapped me inside again we had some really beautiful weather, like 70 degrees, sunny, just stunning. And of course, being a beekeeper, I had to run out to my hives and see how the girls were doing. And if you follow me on Instagram, you would have seen some short videos where I got kind of an idea. But since then, I've had more opportunities to go into the hive and I I just want to kind of do a rundown based on my journal where I keep track of what's going on with my bees which is an invaluable tool you know being able to make notes about your hives so I'm going to give kind of a rundown and um, so you all know where I am so as a reminder this is my very first winter with the bees 
So on January 11th, it was 70 degrees and there was activity that I could see at all three hives in line with what I would expect to see at this time of year. So cleansing flights and um, a fair amount of bees, but not sort of boiling with uh, a huge population. January 31st, it was 35 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Hives number two and three had bees that were coming out to die. Um, If a bee can leave the hive before they die, they will do. Um, And I noticed that hive number one had no activity, but when I placed my hand between the, uh, the hive wrap and the actual wooden hive, I could feel a very strong heat coming from them. And I also noticed a lot of moisture running off the bottom board. As I've mentioned before, I have my hives tilted so that condensation and water will run off. But the amount that I was seeing made me worry that there might be too much moisture in this hive. And I started to kind of keep a closer eye on them. March 8th is when everything changed. Uh, Hive number one which is the hive with my Queen Caredwin, who is a Ohio queen, was boiling with bees and activity. Um, Just so many bees, I was amazed. And I was able to go in and look underneath the candy board and the cluster in there was big and strong. Now it was high up, it was right under the candy board, but it looked good and I could see it descending deeper into the hive. So I added a little extra fondant for them just to help them. Hive number two, which is my queen marker. She's um, the only surviving Southern queen of the two that I first bought. She was the queen of my weakest hive, but now she's my second strongest. And I found that her cluster was much smaller than hive number one, but it still looked strong. They had gone through quite a lot of fondant and I added more because I could see that they were continuing to use it up. Now hive number three, which is Queen Morrigan, who is the queen that I call my homegrown queen because they raised her themselves, had no activity on this day. And I felt kind of sick and I thought they're dead. There's just nothing. I can't see any movement. But because it was a warmer day, I'm afraid I actually don't have the temperature logged but I'm going to guess that it was in the 50s because I try not to peak unless it's warm. I had a look and the cluster was so small and weak and right under the candy board and I could see looking down that there was so much unopened and therefore uneaten honey on the outer edges as well as a lot of dead bees and overall my impression was that this hive which was my strongest was not only my weakest but was not doing well and might not survive. So I ended up clearing out the dead bees that I could reach without damaging any comb. I added more fondant, I closed them up and I just hoped for the best. On March 9th it was 60 degrees and sunny I put pollen substitute out in like an open free feeder, a little space away from all the hives so that the foragers could take it as needed. And I did notice increased activity at all three hives, which gave me some hope. On March 12th, it was 52 degrees with a moderate wind. And I had a feeling that 
there was a lot more die off in Hive 3 than what I'd been able to see. So I went out, I removed the mouse guard and I started scooping out bees and I was scooping out so many dead bees. There were so many that I could actually feel that the the frames had raised, been pushed upwards slightly from just the sheer volume of little dead bee bodies. And they had completely blocked the lower entrance and the uh, decomposing was creating more moisture so it didn't smell great. I could tell that um, it was impacting ventilation. So I scooped out everything that I could before replacing the mouse guard, putting more fondant and even some of the pollen sub directly onto the candy board in the hopes that this would help. So at this point, I had to assess and decide what was going on. And the big question was, what had happened to hive number three? What had changed over winter so that my largest, most vibrant, seemingly my most healthy colony had come out of winter so weak? And my first thought was mites. Now, I did mite checks on schedule throughout my first year. And although this hive always was below the threshold for mites, they always had the highest mite count of the three hives. So we know that mites transmit diseases and these diseases can impact the bees later on in their life. But we also know that mites consume the fat bodies in a bee which is part of what they use to help get them through winter. So although looking at the bees that were surviving, I couldn't see any signs of obvious disease like nosema or deformed wing virus or dysentery, it was also possible that uh, they just didn't have the fat bodies anymore and they were having large winter die-offs. On a slightly more optimistic viewpoint, I also wondered if the queen had started producing eggs sooner than the other colonies. So as I've mentioned previously, and as you might already know, the much like chickens, it is the amount of daylight hours that start to affect when a queen will begin laying again, not the temperature. So if you're still in a very cold winter, but your daylight hours are expanding, your queen starts laying, and then all the workers in that colony have to work harder than ever to maintain the brood nest because that brood nest needs to stay around 94 degrees Fahrenheit for the entire life of that brood. So if, for instance, she was laying sooner, she already had a smaller cluster because of the mites, then that smaller cluster is going to lose so many bees as they're working super hard and we might have been in a period of time where I peeked in and a lot of the older bees had died but the young bees hadn't started to emerge. That was my optimistic view and I also started thinking ahead to well how can I check what's going on in terms of mites and now usually I do an alcohol wash so that's where I take half a cup which is about 300 bees and I put them in a little thing with alcohol and that kills the bees. Now, looking at this colony, I don't think they can spare 300 bees. Um, even if I gave them time to get into the spring, they're so far back compared to the other colonies, I, I wouldn't want to risk those 300 bees. 
So the option I could do is the sugar roll method, which doesn't kill the bees. I mean, it might kill a couple, but generally speaking, it doesn't kill the bees. But it's not quite as accurate um, because there's more room for user error with the sugar roll, or at least that's what I've been told. But I decided that would be a good solution if they're still low on population and I wanna do a mite check when the weather's better. And so one of the like goals I've set for myself is to learn everything I can about the sugar roll method and um, be prepared to do that. But then on March 26, we had an absolutely stunning day. Um, it was about 50 to 60 degrees, but very sunny. So it felt warmer. All the hives were active. Um, everyone, every bee seemed cheerful and they were bringing pollen in. And so I got a really good look. And in fact, it was so nice that I suited up and I did a proper inspection. And I'm gonna break it down by hive. Now it was 50 to 60 degrees, it was sunny. There was a moderate wind, there was a threat of rain. So I was working as quickly as possible without being reckless. And the time was around four o'clock. So I started with my really strong hive because I was concerned at the number of bees that I had seen that they were potentially at risk of swarming if I couldn't get in there soon. So hive number one, that's Queen Caredwin. It's currently my strongest hive and Queen Caredwin is a fifth generation Ohio bee that was given to me by one of my teachers, Emily. And I really feel like that fifth generation Ohio genetics is probably what made her come out so strong. So they were super active and numerous. I went through the colony and I found my queen. And funnily enough, she still has the pink marking from last year. They haven't licked it off yet. And I found her on actually the very last outer frame on the left side of the upper box. She was on a frame of... Um, capped brood and next to her was a frame of X. So she'd obviously just popped across. Because they had so much honey still in this colony, um, I ended up adding an extra deep box because I felt that the queen didn't have room to lay more eggs. So what I did is I, I moved some frames around. So I moved frames that had honey in them over winter and that the bees had used and I moved those empty comb I moved those closer to the brood so that she could go from the brood area onto this empty frame and start laying eggs immediately I also put um, that empty box on top and I took a frame of honey from the lower box and I put that up to encourage movement and I left the mouse guard in place because the weather is going to be erratic and I didn't want to risk us having like a really cold night and a mouse getting in there and um, killing the colony or harming them. Now, because I added that extra box, this means that I had two deeps and one medium on this colony now. And because it was tilted to help with the moisture runoff, I just felt that the quilt box on top made it very unstable. So I decided to take that quilt box off, but I left the candy board in place so that they would have extra food if needed because it could get cold again. And I also put the Bee Cozy Wrap back on. So when I left them, Basically what I had done is I had expanded the brood area so that the queen had space to lay eggs. And the way 
the boxes are oriented, there is a deep box on the bottom with the mouse guard on and that box is filled with honey and pollen. Then I have the medium box with the queen and the brood in and some empty frames to give her space to expand the brood nest and on the edges are frames of honey. And then on top of that, I have a deep box. Most of it has built up comb, so it's completely ready to fill. And I also put one frame of honey up there to encourage them to move up and use it. Now this hive, I'm gonna to have to watch very closely as the weather improves because they are busy, 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 and I could definitely see them preparing to swarm. Now my second hive, hive number two, that's Queen Marka. That is my remaining Southern Queen. And by that, what I mean is when I started beekeeping, I had two nucleus colonies with queens that came from the South. Now, one of those queens, something happened to her. I don't know. I still don't know if the hive killed her or I accidentally rolled her, but she was gone very quickly and they replaced her. And I ended up requeening that hive with Caredwin and taking the queen cells out in a split to um, basically start another hive. And that's how I got Morrigan. So Queen Marka is my remaining Southern queen. And I'd been worried about her because I felt like her buildup wasn't really good going into winter but she has proven me wrong because she is now my second strongest colony so I went in frame by frame I found her she has eggs there is some capped brood already and a half a frame full of eggs and with this hive I ended up reversing the boxes because the bottom deep box was empty but it had all that beautiful built-up comb so what I did is I took the medium box which is where my queen and the brood was and I put that on the bottom I took the mouse guard off the deep box and I put that on top so they'd have room to move up and then I actually um, used the mouse guard on its side as an entrance reducer just to hopefully you know stave off any mice Obviously a mouse could push it aside, but I look at my hives daily. So if I see that, I know there's an issue I can go in. I just didn't want to be drilling in the hive anymore. Um, I also put the candy board back on. I put a little bit of fondant in there for them. I put some of the pollen sub in because they have brood. And then I closed everything up with the quilt box on top and then the bee cozy back on. When I was in this hive, I got a really good look at some of the pollen coming in, which was a beautiful really unusual like pale green off yellow color it was very special I I was really happy to see it and I was happy to see my girls busy and then I went to my struggling hive and I was very nervous to go in there but also cautiously optimistic so this is Queen Morrigan my homegrown queen as far as I know, she is a Southern slash Ohio cross. So what I mean by this is that she, the queen cells that were raised were based around the eggs from the Southern queen. But obviously when she came out, she went off and mated with local drones. Now that could be a mix of all kinds of things. Um, my neighbor, you know, like four doors down who has a lot of hives, his bees come from all over. Um, he 
get swarms every year, like a huge number of swarms last year. He also buys packages of like carniolans. Um, uh, what was the one he was interested in? I think he's had Russian bees before. I mean, he basically just gets his bees from all over and he raises his own queen. So I'm assuming that most of the drones are just a big genetic mix. So I go in and I find the queen. I find Morrigan and she's already been laying some eggs and she has the smallest amount of capped brood and the smallest amount of eggs. So that kind of proves that I was wrong about her maybe laying early, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. And she's also in, she's in the top box. Now, what threw me about this colony is it is packed to the brim with honey. There is so much honey in this hive that they haven't used. And looking at it, it does seem to support the idea that the cluster was too small. Because if you remember, the cluster of the bees has to be in contact with the frames of honey in order to utilize that food. If they get smaller and smaller and smaller, even if there are honey frames around them, if they can't move as a cluster to those frames, and they're not going to move sideways, they're going to move up, at least in a Langstroth hive, they don't utilize that honey because it's too cold for them to break away, get that honey and bring it back safely. And so that honey goes unused. To give you an idea, the deep box was so full of honey that it hurt my back when I went to move it. Now, I know I have a weak back, but that's not usually something I would expect to feel at this time of year. And even the box with the queen in was packed of honey and she didn't have room to lay any more eggs. So again, I maneuvered some frames around so that she had some empty frames, but with that lovely built up comb available next to where she'd already been laying so that she could expand her brood nest. I also did a reversal. So the bottom box, which is um, packed full of honey, well, mostly honey, it does have some empty frames. I ended up putting that on top and moving the brood box down. But I also moved frames around so that there's not honey blocking them at the top. There is room for them to expand up into that box where the honey stores are to produce brood. So I made sure that she has empty frames that she can use where she is and above her as well. I took the mouse guard off on this hive. I put it on its side to act as an entrance reducer again. I put the candy board on with some pollen substitute and a little bit of fondant. And then again, I put the quilt box back on and then the bee cozy. And I just hoped that they can rally because the queen is laying. That is a good sign. So this left me with a lot of new things to think about. And I hope that what I just explained was clear um, I, I will as always um, post kind of a rundown of what I've discussed here onto my website which you can find in the episode uh, notes or description so hopefully you can follow along with me if you need clarification or, or send me a message but after this last proper inspection where I got to find all my queens my first thought was yay everyone survived and that's a big deal um, it's hard to get your colonies through winter, particularly when you've never done it before. 
But really, I just, I can't wrap my head around. Every single hive has a lot of honey, a lot more than I anticipated. And it made me wonder, can you leave too much honey on hives? And I feel like, no, I'd rather they had more food than not enough food. And I think some of my concern about them having that much honey is that I can't extract it. So let's say we go into spring and they don't eat that all up as they're, you know, raising brood, which is energy intensive. Um, I can't take that honey to extract because I had to treat my hives with apivar um, at a time when they had honey frames on. Now, apivar, you're supposed to remove the honey supers or any honey frames before you treat with it because it's not been approved for um, like human consumption of that honey. But it is okay for your bees to eat it. And because I knew I wasn't going to be harvesting last year, I knew that I wanted the bees to have that honey. I was like, yeah, it's not ideal, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. So now potentially I'm looking at, okay, well, let's say they don't use that honey and they start producing more honey that I can extract. What do I do with what I can't extract? Well, the good news is that as they go into spring, you know, as things get much warmer, I will be removing the candy board and that's going to encourage them even more to be using up their honey. And as I said, this is kind of the time of year actually where they might increase how much honey they're using because rearing the brood is energy intensive. They have to keep that nice hot brood nest. And when the nights get cold or if we have a sudden freeze, you know, that's hard on them. But if they do have some leftover and it's taking up space in there and I'm worried they're not going to use it, something that I can do is I can take that whole frame off, I can wrap it securely and I can freeze it. And all I need to do is mark it so that I know that that is honey that is only safe for the bees. It is not for extraction for people. But I still had a lot of questions. What what was I really looking at here? What had gone on with Queen Morrigan? what was good, what was bad. I thought I had a good idea, but I needed feedback. So I emailed one of my teachers and I was really, really grateful that he got back to me within 24 hours and he had really good advice. And I'm going to go over what he told me at the end of this episode, because it relates to some of the things that I learned at the workshop that I went to. So after all of that big rambling about what's going on with my bees... Let's talk about the subject of today's episode, which is the Tri-County Beekeepers Workshop. Now, I'm really grateful to my beekeeping neighbor, not just because he's been such a wonderful resource for me, and it's so nice to have someone nearby who also keeps bees and has just so much experience, but because he told me about this workshop, and if he hadn't, I might not have known it ever existed, because as I've said before, I'm not involved with my local clubs because of the timing and because I'm kind of a hermit. So this is a big workshop for the area. It's the biggest workshop in the spring. And this year was the 42nd annual spring workshop. It runs from March 6th to 7th and it's in Worcester, Ohio. It's actually right, um, it's at a place called Fisher Auditorium, which is right by the OSU Worcester campus. And the workshop is um, a period of time where there are talks, there are educational series, there's all kinds of vendors, and then there's opportunities to socialize. 
So the workshop actually started on Friday the 6th in the evening, which was mainly a registration and a social occasion. Um, I believe there was um, some talks, but those were gonna be repeated the next day. And this was mainly for people who were traveling in. So anyone who was traveling a large distance and had to stay overnight, this was a time to get together, meet other people there, register, you know, relax and um, be prepared for the next day. So Saturday the 7th, that's the full day of the talks and the workshops and the shopping. And um, I'm going to link to the Tri-County Beekeepers website on my blog so you can follow along and you can see um, what they're all about. And I'm just going to share a little bit of information about them. So the Tri-County Beekeepers Association, excuse me, let me try that again. The Tri-County Beekeepers Association was founded about 35 years ago and it mainly serves Wayne, Holmes and Ashland counties but they actually welcome members from all over Ohio. It doesn't matter how far away you are. The association meets monthly on the last Wednesday of each month at the Honeybee Lab on the OSU Worcester campus and that's about an hour maybe a little further away from me but definitely doable. So here's some things that I really liked about the workshop that I'm just gonna list real quick. So one of the big draws for me was all the vendors because there were big businesses like Man Lake and then smaller local businesses um, of which supplied all kinds of things. So there were people there who just sold bee books, bee DVDs. There were magazine subscriptions to like bee culture and new magazines coming out. There were local woodworkers who build all kinds of different hives. And um, I actually managed to pick up a really great deal on Apigard, which is a thymol-based treatment for mites, and Apivar, which I mentioned previously, which is the treatment I used last year and I really liked. I also saw new items that I didn't even know existed, like this product called a Better Comb, which is basically artificial wax combs. So instead of putting a frame of just plastic foundation into your Langstroth hive. They create this artificial wax, which has already created the cells. The idea being that the bees don't need to produce as much wax and they can go, kind of go in there and start filling those cells immediately. Now I didn't buy any of this because I wanted to look into it more, but I thought it was really interesting and I didn't even know that that existed. I also found a company that use bee propolis for all kinds of skin and healthcare products. So they immediately caught my eye because I have ridiculously dry skin on my hands. I know I've talked about this before, but I wash my hands so much because of all the animals that I have and how much like cleaning and stuff that I do that um, I end up with really, really dry skin and it's, it's a problem. And I mean, now with the coronavirus, it's, it's even worse. So I immediately saw this cream that they had and zeroed in on them and I went to talk to them. And the woman who owns it is so nice and we were chatting and it's all based on a study from the 1970s that implied that bee propolis is a good healing agent, particularly for wounds and that it might have some antiviral properties. Now, I haven't found this study yet, but it might be the subject of a future episode. But I am going to link to this company that sells these products because I love them. Um, I got a hand cream. It's their most powerful cream. So it has the most 
be propolis in it. It smells like propolis, which I love. So it's kind of smoky and, and woody. It works really, really well. Um, I have had really good success with it. And also I bought a nasal spray with propolis in it because I have really bad sinus issues and we're going into hay fever season. And I don't know if it's necessarily working better than regular nasal sprays, but I much prefer it over any kind of medicated spray. And um, I'm pretty optimistic about how it's working. And this is one of those areas I, I am interested in exploring. And the products are just, you know, they're beautifully made. It's a local company. It might be up your alley. Check out my uh, website for a link. Other things that I liked about this workshop. I actually managed to miss the online registration and I emailed about um, whether it would be possible for me to register on the day because um, not only had registration closed online, but they also have a limit. So once they reach a certain number of people, they, they won't accept anymore. Well, the person who responded to me was actually the, the vice president of the Tri-County Beekeepers Association, Mr. Randall Westfall. He was very helpful and he said that he would be happy to register me himself. And all I would need to do is on the day, get there, pick up my badge and my little bag of goodies and then just pay at the, on the day. So I was really appreciative of that because otherwise I couldn't go. Um, and he was true to his word. He had me registered within 24 hours. When I got there, there was a handwritten badge waiting for me and I paid and I was ready to be on my way. So that was wonderful. And I really appreciate him letting me squeeze under the wire like that. The variety of talks, that was another benefit. They had a mix of like single talks. So it was one special guest talking about one subject and then three part workshops. So over the course of the day, you would attend a workshop. So you'd start with like say, um, introduction to beekeeping part one, two and three over the course of the day. I was very grateful that they had a company there providing free coffee for the whole day. So I um, was very happy about that. They also had um, complimentary baked goods when you arrived. I gluten-free, so I couldn't partake of them, but they looked great and people seemed to love them. Lunch was provided for an extra fee. And something I thought was really smart is that they staggered the lunch hours. So there were two different lunch times to make sure that the dining area didn't become overwhelmed. As far as I saw, everything was managed really well. I was very impressed. Um, I They had signs up to help you get around. The registration went smoothly. Picking up my badge went smoothly. Just everything was very, very well done. I like the space that they used. I think it was a good choice. And at the end of the day, there was a really big question and answer, answer session with all kinds of keepers, scientists, apiary inspectors, um, all kinds of beekeepers. Now, I wasn't able to attend that, but I loved the fact that they had it. I think that's a wonderful resource. A shorter list is things that I didn't like. Um, and I'm saying this as a kind of, so that you know, if you live in the area, what you're getting into, not in a criticism of the organization. I think generally speaking, it was really, really well done. But the first thing you get to see when you get there is that the parking was kind of chaotic. And I know it's difficult because I think the people who are helping from the association, they're all volunteers, right? And it's hard to get people to have that kind of time to help when you've got such a huge day planned. 
But if they could have an attendant to direct people, it would be a really big help, um, particularly on the overflow parking lot where a number of vendors actually park and sell their wares from their trucks. There was really no organization over there. And I saw a couple of near miss accidents um, because people couldn't see around the corners and it was mainly a one lane situation and it was just a bit nuts. Uh, a second thing was that there were some talks that were placed in the dining area, which if you go there, it's it's an open space. And although they had panels that they pulled across to try and help with the sound, it, it just was a little too open and it made it a little difficult to hear the speaker, um, particularly because there was a lot of issues with the microphones not working properly. So that was a little bit of a challenge. My big complaint is that I couldn't do everything. That's not their fault. I just wish that I could have gone to every talk, um, which obviously wasn't possible. And just as a, just just being a cranky person, if you will allow me, some people are just rude. And in enclosed spaces, you're going to see it. So as kind of a thing, you know, if you're going to a workshop and your children are being noisy while someone's trying to talk, take them out of the freaking room. Is it really that hard? Don't interrupt the speaker. <laughs> the uh, Mr. Randall Westfall, actually, when he gave his welcoming speech at the beginning, um, he actually said to everyone, you know, just as a little etiquette, don't interrupt the speaker during the talks because there's going to be questions and answers at the end. So make a note if you have a question or something you'd like to talk about and wait until the end. But that didn't stop some people from constantly interrupting and being rude. So that was a bummer. And also people, for the love of all that is good, wear deodorant. Oh my goodness. I was horrified by some of the things that I smelled um, in the crowded areas. Is it too much to ask to have basic hygiene? I would really appreciate it. And that obviously isn't anyone, well, it's not the association's fault. It's not the workshop's fault, but bear in mind if you go that you're going to smell things that aren't great. <laughs> so um, anyway, the workshop started bright and early on Saturday at 8 a.m. for registration. There was also um, live music, coffee and pastries provided at this time. And then at nine o'clock, uh, Mr. Randall Westfall, the VP, welcomed everyone and gave a brief speech. That was where he reminded people how to be polite, but apparently some people just refused to be polite. And then, and this is what I really wanted to get to and I'm very excited about. At 9.30 was the keynote address it was titled Sustainable Apiary, Dream or Reality by Mr. Michael Palmer. And this is the talk that had the biggest impact on me and just gave me so much to think about and honestly was the highlight of the workshop for me. So who is Michael Palmer? Well, he's the owner and operator of French Hill Apiaries in St. Albans, Vermont. And I will post to his website, which is really lovely, by the way, and has some wonderful pictures and information. I'll put that in the episode description. I would like to just read directly from his about page because it really kind of sums up um, who he is and what he's doing and what his history is. So this is all directly from his website. Mike Palmer bought his first two packages of bees from F.W. Jones Company of Quebec in 1974. They cost $10.50 delivered. Neither colony made it through the first winter, but he kept trying and built up to 200 hives by 1981. 
1982, Mike got a job managing the bees owned by Chasey Orchards in Chasey, New York, and did so until 1986. Then he convinced Chasey to sell their bees to him, so at that time he had more than 600 colonies. Mike began raising his own queens in 1998 and has been doing so ever since. Today, Mike raises about 1,200 queens and manages over 1,000 colonies, with some 600 to 700 production colonies and hundreds of nucleus colonies. He has lectured on his methods of beekeeping all over the world. So this guy has a lot of experience, he has a lot of hives, and you might have noticed he has a lot of nucleus colonies. So the talk that he gave appears to be an expanded version of an article that he wrote for Henderson County Beekeepers Association, which I actually found and I will provide a link on the website. And the main focus of his talk is overwintering nucleus colonies and why this can be such a huge benefit to beekeepers. So the big question is, why nucleus colonies? And that's a good question. So let's break down some of what he shared. He started his talk by talking about um, what sustainable apiaries means. Now, my first thought when I saw that in the, um, the guide for the day was, oh, like zero waste stuff, like biodegradable things, like minimizing our costs. And I was more correct on the latter there. So basically, over his time as a beekeeper, things that he realized were that buying new bees and buying queens is expensive and that any honey surplus money would go towards new bee purchase. And it got to the point where he was looking at his business and he was wondering where is the actual profit here? Because it felt like the money that he was making from his honey was going right back into buying new bees every year. And he also noticed that because bees become this valuable commodity that you're purchasing every year, you hold on to colonies that don't perform as well because you're loath to lose even one hive. And if you decide that you want to reproduce your colonies yourself by splitting, which um, as a reminder is when you take a large colony and you split it into two or more smaller colonies, Either you allow them to requeen, which is, you know, time intensive and might fail, but then you also have to buy the queens otherwise to go in there. And when you split a colony, you're going to be reducing your honey harvest because the bees now have to focus on building up their populations before they can really bring in a lot of honey for you to harvest. So over the years, Mike Palmer started to think that is there a better way? Surely there has to be. Is there any way that I can make my bee yard be truly self-sustaining? And this is what he recommended to get started. Look at your colonies and find one that is not productive. And by this, what he means is a colony that is healthy, but doesn't produce much or any surplus honey for you to harvest. And if you're a small scale beekeeper like myself, you might not have a colony like that. Um, but if you have a lot of colonies, I'm sure you can identify one who maybe isn't always doing what you want it to do. Maybe it's not a great provider of honey. Um, and so that would be the one that you choose. And his recommendation is take that colony and split it into four nucleus colonies. 
So as a reminder, a nucleus colony is um, four to five frames only. And the idea is that it is smaller and it is for producing brood and therefore bees. And if you're like me, you might have bought nucleus colonies before. So he's saying, find this colony that you're willing to sacrifice and split it into four nucleus colonies. And the way he recommends doing that is you take two frames of brood, an empty frame, and then some honeycomb for each nucleus colony. And the formation of that, if you're looking down at the box, starting on the left side, would be honey frame, sealed brood, mixed brood, empty comb. He works with uh, four frame nukes, which is why... Uh, as I taught today, it's always going to be about four frames. But if you have five frames, you can add an additional empty comb. And he recommends giving mated queens where you follow the appropriate introduction method. Um, because if you let them raise their own queens, that's going to take a lot more time and you're never really sure what you're going to get. So he suggests using mated queens. So what's next? Well, now you have to think about what's different in managing a full-scale colony to a nucleus colony. So mainly your management is going to be swapping out frames of brood with empty comb so that the queen has room to lay. And you can get these little nucleus supers so that you can expand the colony upwards, just like you would with a full-size Langstroth hive. And if you super above, the bees will go up and they'll store honey, just like they would in your regular hive. And the importance of adding supers um, is something that Mike actually learned over time because the biggest impediment, it wasn't so much that running out of room led to swarming, although that's true. What he really saw was absconding. And absconding is when the whole colony leaves and they don't leave queen cells behind. It's not a swarm. It's not them saying, okay, we've reached maximum size, but we're good, we're healthy, we're going to reproduce by taking the old queen and 50% of the colony and leaving behind queen cups, queen cells, so that the bees left behind can raise a new queen. Absconding is just when they go, nope, we are done, and they leave. And he found that absconding was happening quite regularly during the summer. And he realized that it was because the nucleus colony was just too small for proper temperature and humidity regulation. So it was becoming uncomfortable, maybe even inhospitable to the bees. And they were just saying, we are out of here. And they left. So by supering above, not only are you giving them more space to expand, but you're giving them more space so that they can modify temperature and humidity inside that nucleus colony in a way that benefits them. And what's kind of wonderful about this is that once you have a strong nucleus colony going, you can make new nucleus colonies from a single colony. As they get bigger and bigger, you can take those frames out of brood, you can start another nucleus colony. And this is assuming that you have access to queens, which Mike does because he started raising his own. But also if you're willing to spend the money and you know of someone who raises local queens, you can support your local queen producers by buying those queens and building more nukes. 
Another benefit of these nucleus colonies is making what Mike calls bee bombs, which is where you take brood frames from nukes and you give them to struggling colonies in the spring. And he calls it a bee bomb because you have this colony, it's weak, it's struggling, and then you add these brood frames, those babies start to hatch and suddenly there's this explosion, like a bomb going off of bees. Now, as I mentioned, Mike lives and keeps his bees in Vermont. Now Vermont gets very, very cold and he actually shared an incredible picture of snow that was maybe five feet high, like all the way up his um, full-size Langstroth hives to the point where he's cleared some space so that they can come out the top entrance if they need to. I mean, that's how much snow that they sometimes get in Vermont. So overwintering is a concern. But you can actually overwinter nucleus colonies as long as you have a minimum of two. And I'm going to try and explain this um, as best as I can. And I'm also going to try and draw it and then put that on my website so that you can kind of see what I mean. But basically, if you can imagine you have two nucleus boxes and you put them directly next to each other so that if you look at them they've basically formed a eight or ten frame deep and what's interesting is that in each of these nucleus colonies the cluster doesn't cluster around the middle frame in each colony it clusters against the wall that touches the wall of the other nucleus colony So if you looked down into them, it's like looking down into a eight or 10 frame where the cluster is central. And something that Mike actually does is he doesn't use two separate nukes next to each other. He takes a regular deep box and he puts a divider in the middle and then they cluster directly around that divider. And he's actually found that um, this is his preferred design and there's no issues with the bees. Um, trying to get into each other's nucleus colonies they are happy to live side by side in this way and when you place them together like that you can just wrap the hive as you normally would now a nucleus colony getting through winter it needs a minimum of those two boxes next to each other and two boxes up so you'd have the box on the bottom with your brood and your bees and then the box on the top which should be filled with honey place that next to an identical situation, wrap both of them. You can put a quilt board on there. You can put a candy board on there. You just treat it like a regular hive. And he has had success with that. So it's kind of a quick um, summary. What can you use nucleus colonies for? Are they worth the work? Well, let's see, what can you use them for? You can use them to replace winter losses. You can use them to make increases. You can use them to requeen weak colonies. They are brood factories, which can be added to support other colonies. You can make more nukes from them and you can use them as cell builders. And as a terminology note, because I didn't know what a cell builder was, um, I'd like to quote, um, because this is the perfect description. I found a website called Wildflower Meadows and they talk about the queen cell builder and I will link to that. And they say, uh, special that, uh, that a cell builder is a special bee colony that are established with the specific purpose of raising queen cells. And Mike 
raises a lot of queens and so he finds that these nucleus colonies directly support his cell builders which directly affects how many queens he can successfully raise every year which directly affects both the money that he's bringing in when he sells queen but also the support he's giving his own colonies when it's time to requeen. Now he summed up his talk by saying that um, in 2011 from 50-5-0 overwintered nucleus colonies, Mike made 35 cell builder colonies, 330 new nucleus colonies, over 330 new queens, and 4,400 pounds of honey. That's incredible. I was sold listening to him talk and reading his website information just really made me feel that this is an incredible tool that all of us could use. Now, before I talk a little bit more about um, how what I learned during Mike's talk has affected my management plans, I also just want to go through quickly and talk about the workshop that I attended. So although it was hard to choose because there were so many great talks, there were talks about uh, microbials in bee guts and um, how we can offer them to them to support them and um, my, one of my teachers was there talking and I love to do his talks because he's a wonderful teacher but I really wanted to do the Top Bar Hives workshop and it's something that you know I've been talking about so I couldn't resist. So the Top Bar Hive workshop was with Christy Hemingway. I will share her website um, and I would like to once again just quote um, a description written by her that she posts online and so this is her kind of about me section as the founder of gold star honeybees christy hemingway is working to reintegrate honeybees in organic agriculture the movement towards small organic local diversified farms creates a ripe environment for this gold star honeybees signature top bar beehive supports the honeybees natural systems especially the making of their own beeswax honeycomb and supports the beekeeper by being an easy-to-manage hive system. Hemingway offers classes and workshops across the country to teach new beekeepers about stewarding bees. She makes very clear the connection between bees and our food system, the health of the planet, and our own long-term health. So, gives you kind of an idea about what Christy is all about. She has also written two books, The Thinking Beekeeper and Advanced Top Bar Beekeeping, she builds and sells top bar hives. She offers classes and talks, either small or large, and she even has a Patreon account, and I will link to all of this. Something that I really loved about Christy, aside from the fact that she actually makes and sells top bar hives, which I'm just in awe of because I am not very handy, but she set up a really good Facebook uh, connection. So she has a global Facebook Facebook group set up for top bar beekeepers and then she's also set up regional groups and I'll share the link so you can go in you can find your state it will send you to that Facebook group and then you can connect with other top bar beekeepers in your state and I really like this community that she's trying to build and trying to keep everyone connected and just as kind of a personal touch I joined the Ohio group and I joined the global group and a moderator of the page or perhaps Christy herself it was under the um the 
the main uh, Facebook link, so it's hard to tell. And I, I know that there are moderators who help. But anyway, someone associated with it basically says, hey, everyone, um, Gemma just joined. Let's welcome her to the group. And if you want to share something about what you're doing, Gemma, that would be great. And just stuff like that, which I really, really like. So in terms of her workshop, it consisted of three talks spread out through the day. And at the end of every talk was a question and answer session. So the first section was top bar hive, how and why, top bar hive management for beginners, and then advanced top bar hive management. And I'm just gonna run through the notes that I made during her talks. Um, top bar hive beekeeping is something I wanna go into in greater detail in another episode. So kind of consider this more of an introduction um, and just sort of a guide by one particular top bar beekeeper. So to start out, why top bar hives? Well, Christy's favorite saying is it's all about the wax. And in terms of that, she narrows it down to the three C's, cell size, comb shape, and chemical contamination. And that's really what pushed her into top bar beekeeping. And it's why she is obsessed with wax. And Basically what happened is when she started to read about how the wax in honeycomb was containing certain chemicals, she decided to send her wax off for testing. And she compared it to what other hives um, can get from uh, testing their wax. And what she found was that in her top bar hives, so there's no foundation, and the wax is, um, a lot of new wax is created every year because if you are harvesting, you have to cut the full comb down and crush it to get the honey out. So there's more fresh wax basically. And she found that her fresh wax had really, really low levels of chemical contamination compared to what you would expect to see in say a Langstroth hive where the wax has been used um, over and over and over again year by year. So this really caught her attention and made her realize the benefits in um, terms of uh, beeswax and reducing chemical contamination. Other benefits of top bar hives include um, the minimizing of heavy lifting, which is great for someone like me who has a bad back. They're sort of ergonomically friendly and they're self-contained. So you're not adding extra boxes like with a Langstroth, you have one hive, it is a predetermined size and shape and you don't add onto it to increase uh, the amount of room. In terms of frames, um, she talked about how you would be using um, spacers to make sure that the comb is spaced appropriately which basically is supposed to help uh, cross comb so that uh, you can lift each frame individually and they're not like kind of gluing everything together. She talked about how comb collapse is always a risk, especially during very hot weather where the wax might be getting a little soft. And so the way you handle each frame is different to what you might be used to with a Langstroth. And then just she talked about always consider the placement of each frame when you're inspecting. It's it's something that you're always concerned with when it comes to your top bar hive. She talked about supplemental feeding. You can use an in-hive feeder to prevent robbing. Um, you feed syrup and fondant just as you would in a Langstroth. 
but she did talk about building fondant like honeycomb so it, it looks like a frame of honeycomb but it's fondant that you can put in and she actually shared um an article about how to do that and I'll put it on the blog in terms of mite treatment she has found that she doesn't have to treat very regularly um, but and something that I love she does do regular mite tests and she does the alcohol wash and her rule is always you know if they need to treat then you treat if she is going to she prefers oxalic acid and she uses a dribble method so you use uh, you put the oxalic acid in like a syringe and you dribble it between each frame oh if you just heard a bang that was my whippet sorry about that there was information shared on the entrance placement, so where the bees go in and out of the hive, and there are choices. So it can be the side center, the side end, the end with a little landing board. And um, just as a side note, Les Crowder, who some consider sort of um, the definitive be all, be all teacher about um top bars he prefers side end and i'm actually reading his book at the moment so i can go into more detail about that on a separate episode the style of the hive um there are actually a lot of different top bar hive designs and the main style is based on entrance placement you can have a landing board added you can have a little viewing window that seems to be quite common with top bar hives and then there's the number of bars. So some top bar hives have like a low amount of bars, like maybe as low as 18 and others have, you know, as many as 40. Christy recommends 30 bars because in her experience, she's had better success overwintering, even in colder areas with that amount. In terms of management differences, she discussed things like the use of the follower boards, the unidirectional honey, and how you might have to manage that, and then a mid-season shift of honey and brood storage. There was a fair amount of information about placing your hive, which is crucial. Um, it's a lot like with any hive, but one of the big things to consider is that the area you place it has to be level. Christy really stressed that you can't guess, go out there with a level and make sure that your hive is absolutely level because the combs have less support than you would see in a Langstroth hive. And so you really need to be aware of gravity and how even a small tipping of the hive can affect that and put added pressure on one side of the beeswax comb. And then consider things like, you know, we all do every winter. So wind, a windbreak might save your bees one winter. Uh, where is the sun? How much sun are they getting? Are they gonna be exposed to pets? children uh, are they in view of your neighbors does your mailman need to walk through where the bees are flying in these are things that we all consider and it's no different with um top bars in terms of acquiring bees for your top bar you can get a swarm or a package but a nucleus colony is probably out nucleus colonies are almost always formatted in the shape of a Langstroth hive and trying to get Langstroth frames into a top bar hive is extremely difficult um, and not always successful and I've never seen anyone offering um, nucleus colonies that would work for a top bar hive so she basically said plan on a swarm or plan on buying a package and just go with that because it is um, going to be a lot easier. 
she went over basics like what do you do once you've installed uh, the bees there you need to feed them um, don't feed them honey you don't know what's in that honey you don't know where it came from feed sugar syrup or feed fondant and consider stuff that we've talked about before like how you want a one one ratio of sugar syrup in spring versus a two one ratio of sugar sugar syrup excuse me in the fall in terms of inspections uh, the first year you are what Christy calls a wax shepherd, which I loved because you're really just so focused on making sure that they're building those frames in a way that will allow you to go in and inspect. She suggests lifting every bar and looking at both sides, being mindful that you can't just flip it like you would with a Langstroth frame because you're going to be working against gravity. So there's a little bit of learning new management techniques and new ways to inspect you're looking at the regular things like how is the hive building up how is their health do they have a queen is she actively laying and as always if you see a problem act early don't wait in terms of inspections christy recommends to be intentional to remember your bee math so this is in terms of uh how old an egg is and how long it takes for um the uh adult bee to emerge depending on whether it's a worker bee or a drone or a queen to have a plan before you go in and to prepare to anticipate problems don't just wait until they occur watch and learn so you know what things look like for that hive what's normal for it look for signs of disease and always be mindful of gravity because that comb is attached to the frame at just the one top point and as always keep notes in terms of when to inspect, it's the same as with your Langstroth hive. You want to consider temperature, consider the overall weather. So is it very windy? Is there a threat of rain? And then observe the bees attitudes because it's always okay to just close a hive up and come back in another day. In terms of how often to inspect, um, she basically follows the guidelines that I do, which is that she recommends going in every seven to 10 days. But in the late season, she says that you can push it to every two weeks. And I haven't done that um, just because I love being in there <laughs> and um, I don't have that many hives, so it's easy for me to do. For late season assessment, Christy's looking at um, how they're going to go into winter so she considers the full foliage in her area and whether they're getting enough of um, pollen and nectar or whether they need additional feeding she wants to see a minimum of six to eight combs of honey and she wants the whole colony to have had good growth so at least 20 bars should be full of honey and brood and bees for winter preparation, she recommends making sure that the bottom board is closed, that the entrances have been minimized, using some kind of mouse guard, um, being mindful of where the follower boards are and making sure there's no space between combs, checking that they are building up the propolis seal and being mindful that you don't want to break that seal too close to winter. And as always, keep notes about what you're doing and what you're seeing. Christy talked about four letter words for winter which were wind in terms of wind blocks so whether you're using hay bales or foam insulation or something called a tarp skirt tr uh, trees in your area shrubs that are blocking things like that think about food so they want six to eight bars minimum 
You want to see them backfilling in the honey. You want to look at the cluster position in relation to the food. And you want to consider how you will give them fondant if needed. And then finally, cold. And she talked about penguins. So, you know, a group of penguins, they have the penguins on the outside and then the warmer penguins are in the middle and they rotate out which is just what bees do. So the bees will be on the outside helping to generate heat in the middle and then they'll swap. So the outer bees come into the inner cluster and the inner bees will go out to maintain that temperature and to give every bee a little chance of warmth. Christy also talked about moisture and airflow and this is very dependent on the hive design. But what's great about top bar hives is that there's no space at the top of the hive for condensation to build because you have that frame and the lid goes directly on top of those frames. So condensation can't build there because the comb is there. So that's something that really kind of blew my mind and I'm very interested about. But obviously condensation can still build on the side. So you want to think about if there's enough ventilation in that hive so that um, there's not too much water buildup and also no mold buildup. She talked briefly about harvesting honey and you really just have the two choices because you can't really spin these frames in an extractor like you would with a Langstroth. So what you're looking at is cut comb honey, you know, where you just cut it and you sell it directly as it is, or the crush method, which is exactly what it sounds like. And she recommends using a 600 micron strainer for that. And finally, she closed up with a little information about wax rendering, which um, I didn't make a lot of notes about, but I did talk about in my episode on honey, if you want to go back. Um, And basically what she said is just don't waste this resource. Um, One of the benefits of the top bar hive is how much beautiful beeswax is produced every year. And um, there's so many things you can do with it. It's been created by your bees. You don't want to waste it. Look into what you can do, whether that is um, using it in body products, uh, hand creams, whether it's making candles, whether it's selling it to someone who wants to use it for candles. There's all kinds of things that you can do with that. So what did I learn um, at Christie's workshop? And what did I learn in general? So first, this workshop is an incredible resource. Um, I will definitely be going next year. I hope I can attend every year. The amount of supplies and education and socializing available was wonderful. And in terms of top bar hives, I more than ever want to invest in this. I really am intrigued by um, the difference in the design and how that affects management and how that can perfect I'm sorry, affect comb and also how it can affect bee health. So I started reading Top Bar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health by Les Crowder and Heather Harrell, his wife. And I plan to pick up Christie's book as well. And Les's book in particular is interesting. I'm only uh, a little ways into it. So I'll talk about it more in depth once I finished but he claims that he hasn't had to treat for mites for years and he credits this to the design and management of top bar hives so it's his belief that a top bar hive is closer to what bees would use in the wild and that allowing them to build their own comb with no foundation as a guide or a limit means that they're creating cells of different sizes for what they need which could inhibit mite use 
Les Crowd is also a very big believer on producing mite resistant bees through a careful breeding program. And so I'm really interested in learning more about that. I will be honest that I am skeptical that top bar hives will always lead to being mite free. That just doesn't feel right to me. It feels like a pipe dream, which could be my pessimism. I'm not saying that Les Crowder is a liar at all because I haven't finished reading. Um, There could be all kinds of things that he's doing that are going to impact that. I will say that I did appreciate the fact that Christy spoke passionately about how even if you're not currently treating, you should always test for mites, which I've said before. I really agree with that. I think even if you don't want to treat, you need to know what you're working with. And the only way to know that is to do mite tests. But the biggest takeaway that I took from um, this entire workshop was Mike Palmer's talk on overwintering nucleus colonies because it opened up so many possibilities to me and it changed my mind about what I'm going to be doing in the spring. So I had originally planned on splitting at least one of my colonies to get um, another another hive going and to hopefully prevent swarming. But now I'm thinking that actually what I'm going to do is instead of doing a split, I'm going to build one to two nucleuses and then I'm going to try and overwinter them. And this actually leads back into the advice that I received from my teacher, Apiary Dave, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I reached out to for his advice about what I was seeing in my hives. And he suggested that I take frames of brood and from the strong hive and I add them to the weak hive using the newspaper method. So this is basically like placing a nucleus colony without a queen on top of the weak hive and then letting them merge safely, which is what the newspaper's for. So to do that, kind of a step-by-step guide, which is based on his suggestion, is he basically said, shake all the bees in the weak hive into one box and cover that with newspaper. Poke a few holes in the newspaper and then place an empty box slash super over the newspaper. Then go into the strongest hive, find the queen and the frame that she's on and place that in an empty box or just somewhere safe where she's not going to get away, but you're not going to accidentally move her. Then go into that strong hive and take out a few frames of brood, uh, everything from eggs to cat brood, and place it in the box above the newspaper with all the bees still attached to it. Don't try and knock them off. You want as many of the bees that are interested in caring for those brood into this box as possible. And then fill up that box with um, with uh, additional frames, uh, empty frames. Although if they have built up combs on them, that would be best. Then put the inner outer cover and close up the weak hive. Then replace the frames um, of the brood that you took with empty frames in the strongest hive so you're not leaving any spaces return the queen to her colony and close up the hive the idea is that the weak colony and the bees that you added above them are going to unite through the newspaper and basically what you want to do is within a few days just go in and make sure that that is happening so what you would be looking for is if you go in and that top box where you added the brood has queen cells being built they haven't merged and you're gonna have to knock those queen cells down and give them a bit more time but generally speaking they'll probably have merged within a couple of days and you can go in and you can remove the remaining newspaper 
And the idea is that this is like a boost of brood, like the bee bombs that Mike talked about in his talk, that is going to help that weak colony build up resources and be strong enough to get through the year and get back to where they need to be. Uh, My teacher also told me that if the buildup really just isn't happening as we go further into spring, that that would be the time to consider requeening that colony, preferably with an Ohio queen. So not only is this advice from Apiary Dave really helpful and clear and gives me a good plan of action, but it goes back to why overwintering nucleus colonies could be so beneficial. So imagine if I'd come out of winter and I had my three colonies and I had two nucleus colonies. I could take that a strong nucleus colony without the queen and give it to my weak colony, making that bee bomb and just watch them as they explode. And I could start a new uh, nucleus colony with that queen. So there's so much that I could do. I'd have more resources. Um, uh, Dave also told me that he agrees with my um, idea that it, it might have been mites that were the issue with that hive. Um, he, you know, agreed that it could have been diseases, but also that whole issue of mites feeding on fat bodies and how basically this can lead to your hive looking like everything is well. And then suddenly you have this huge die off, a big die off of workers all around the same time because they just don't have the resources. And he also um, said that maybe because that hive had requeened that she just didn't have enough time to really shore up the number of young bees that she would need to get her through the winter. And it could be a combination of multiple things. He did also point out that if um, this colony, even with additional support, doesn't come back up to full strength, that that could be a sign of poor mating and therefore poor genetics and that requeening would really be the only solution at that point. On a personal note, Um, I was really delighted when he got back to me, not just because, you know, my teachers aren't my mentors. I don't have a mentor. Um, and there is a key difference between a mentor and a teacher, because when a mentor signs up, they know that they're your primary resource and they're committing to give you a certain amount of time and assistance that can be a big drain for someone who is also very busy. Whereas, My teachers are just people that, um, you know, I trust and who have supported me in some way, either through offering education or selling me nucleus colonies or queens. And um, I try not to lean too heavily on them because I understand that um, their time is valuable and that they haven't signed up to be mentors. So I don't want to ask too much. So I was really pleased that Apiary Dave got back to me, um, but also because... um, I felt that I had made a management mistake. I felt that I had done something that had caused this hive to not be as strong, that maybe I hadn't seen that they didn't have enough space for brood. Um, Maybe I had left too much honey on. Um, Maybe the hive wasn't positioned right. Um, I just, I felt like it was something that I had done. And what was nice is that uh, Dave basically told me, no, uh, he didn't see any management issues. I I didn't make a mistake. Um, He actually congratulated me on um, keeping all my hives alive. And um, 
what was really nice is that he said that he wasn't surprised by my success because he knew how much time I had taken before getting bees to educate myself and he's like it shows and I'm not surprised you're doing so well um and I was tickled pink and absolutely delighted um and and I hope that you don't think that I'm sharing this because I'm boasting about how amazing I am as a beekeeper no it's um as a person I always assume that if something goes wrong I did something that I take responsibility for these animals, for these insects, and I'm responsible for how they are managed. And so the first place I look is at myself. And it's just really, really rewarding to have someone say, you're doing a good job, you did what you could, you did the right things. And there are some issues that just happen, but they're all learning experiences, right? Um, I feel like I've learned so much this winter and I there's so much more to learn. <laughs> And mainly I just, I love beekeeping. I absolutely adore it. I'm hugely passionate about it and I want to be good at it. I want to be good at what I'm doing, not just because I want my bees to survive, but because I care so much about this hobby or livelihood or passion or whatever you want to call it that I want to know that I'm doing a good job. Um, I'm all in when it comes to beekeeping. And um, it's just nice to have someone with so much experience who I respect so much to say, you're doing a good job. And that's it. Um, This ended up being a lot longer than I meant for it to be. So I apologize about that. Um, I do hope, however, that you found it interesting. Um, As always, you know where to find me. I'm on all the social medias. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. I'll put all the links on my website. My website's going to have a rundown of everything I covered with some additional pictures, um, which hopefully will be helpful. And as always, like leave me a message, um, drop me a line, leave me a comment. You can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. I would really love to know how you're getting on with your bees. Um, How did you come out of winter? How are things going? And also, how's things going with this coronavirus madness? I hope that you're all okay. If you need anything, I will do the best that I can. So just send me a line. We're all in this together. Um, It's time to think about community, right? So thank you so much again for listening. I appreciate you all so much. I'm very optimistic going into spring. I have a lot to plan for. I have a lot of equipment that I need to buy, some stuff that I need to build. I have things that need to be decorated. I am busy, busy, busy. Well, at least when the weather is nice enough. And I hope that you are finding things to keep you busy as well. So that's it for me this week. Um, In two weeks, I hope to have an episode more in depth on top bar hives for you all with a focus on Les Crowder's work. And um, I hope that will be of interest to you. In the meantime, remember, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Thanks so much. Take care, be healthy, stay safe. Bye-bye.